In this recording, we're going to discuss one of the major questions on Megillah's Esther, which is why the name of Hashem never appears throughout the entire Megillah. And we're going to go through a good number of answers to this question. Now, there are only two books out of 24 throughout the Tanakh where the name of God does not appear, and that is in the Megillah of Esther and in the Megillah of Shir Hashirim. So obviously, a regular book of the Tanakh is filled with the name of God. He's a presence throughout. So the fact that his name does not appear throughout Esther requires some sort of explanation. So there's many explanations that have been given. One of the popular early explanations, which appears in the Rishonim, in the commentators who focus on Pashat Pshat, the straightforward, plain meaning of the Tanakh text. So the Ibn Ezra, who's one of the great figures in that school, in his preface to Megillah's Esther, so he suggests that because Mordechai and Esther were living in exile, they were not living in Israel amongst the Jewish people. They were living in the Persian exile. So they knew that the Megillah they were writing would be translated, it would be used by Persians, by idolaters. So they didn't want to include the name of Hashem in the story that they were writing because they knew that when the Persian idolaters translated it into their language or into any other contemporary language, they would change each time it said Hashem into their idolatry. So rather than have their Megillah become a vehicle for the dissemination of idolatry, they chose to totally exclude any names of God so that when the idolaters translated it, they wouldn't be able to use it and change it into a story about their own idols and their own gods. So that's how he explains why the name of God never appears in this Megillah. You could also formulate it a little differently that since they knew this Megillah would fall into the hands of idolaters, they didn't want God's name to be disrespected. So they chose to omit it entirely. Also, a similar idea appears in the Mishnah Brura in the Laws of Shabbos, where the Shulchan Arach himself actually mentions this point that the name of Hashem never appears throughout Megillus Esther. So in Simon Shin Lamed Dalet, Sifkatan Lamed Ches, the Mishnah Brura quotes the Mordechai and explains this that because they were writing in the Persian exile, so they omitted the name of God. So it sounds like because they did not have an autonomous Jewish government, but they were living under the Persian exile, So they didn't have the freedom to do what they wanted and they couldn't write the name of God in their story. So that's all similar approach that because they were living in exile, they were not able to write the Megillah the way they wanted and that's why they excluded the name of God. Now it's interesting, the Sefer Akedas Yitzchak in his preface to Megillah's Esther, so he suggests a similar idea, but he actually says it the opposite way of the Ibn Ezra. He suggests that the way Megillah's Esther was written and this was done through Esther's request was that they took the Persian official version of events. So after this story, there was an official document prepared for the Persian government as to what had happened and they translated that document and that's what became Megillus Esther. So that's why there is no mention of God because the original draft of this Megillah was written by the Persian historians. Only later was it translated by the 
the rabbis into Hebrew. So when the original Persian historians wrote it, they did not include God's name in it because they didn't believe in God. So that's how the Akedas Yitzchak formulates this idea. Now the Ibn Ezra formulates it the opposite way, that originally it was written by Mordechai and Esther and the Jews, and only afterwards did the Persians translate it into their own language. So there's a debate between the Akedas Yitzchak and the Ibn Ezra what the process was. According to the Akedas Yitzchak, it was first written as an official Persian history and then translated it into Megillas Esther, whereas according to the Ibn Ezra, it was first written as Megillas Esther and then translated as an official Persian history. But either way, they could not include the name of God because it wasn't the right context. They were not in a Jewish environment. They were in a Persian idolatrous environment and including the name of God in that Megillah would have led to all sorts of problems. So that is a popular approach within the medieval commentators. Now, the modern commentators have a different popular approach, which is more ideological, and this appears in the writings of the Vilna Gaon, the Maharal, the Kedusha Slevi as well. So many of the great Bale Machshava from different streams of Jewish thought agree with this basic idea, and they understand the reason for the omission of Hashem's name in Megillas Esther is because it's a reflection of the overall theme of Purim and the way the miracle of Purim was performed, which is that it was not an open miracle, meaning a miracle where the laws of nature were suspended, like the 10 plagues in Egypt or the splitting of the sea. Those are very open miracles where the very laws of nature were changed in order to perform the miracle. The miracle of Purim, on the other hand, is a different sort of miracle because it's a hidden miracle. No laws of nature were changed, and it wasn't totally apparent beyond any shadow of a doubt to everybody that this had to be the hand of God that stepped into history to change it and to save the Jewish people. But rather, this was a quiet, hidden miracle. Anyone that was perceptive, that was looking at the situation carefully, would understand that, of course, this was God acting through history and saving the Jews, but anyone that wanted to ignore it could do so as well. So that's what's called a hidden miracle. And in fact, from the time of Esther and on, that's basically the kinds of miracles that the Jewish people have had, where Hashem takes care of us and he does save us, but it's done in a hidden way. You have to look more carefully in order to see the hand of God guiding history, as opposed to the sorts of miracles which had happened earlier in Jewish history, which were much more open and they they changed the laws of nature, but the miracle of Purim began a new era which would largely be defined by these sorts of hidden miracles. So that's why Purim is such an important holiday because it begins this whole era of Jewish history when we're no longer going to enjoy very open miracles, but we're going to be able to see the guiding hand of history and God playing a role throughout our lives if we look carefully. And that's one of the main themes of Purim. In fact, the Gemara in Chulin Kuflam Testament Bays says that Esther's name, the whole essence of Esther, comes from the verse in the Torah Haster Aster Mehem, that God will hide himself from us. So of course he's still running the world, he's still taking care of us, but in a hidden way. So that's what Esther means. It comes from Hester Panim, that God is hidden. 
So that's the essence of the whole miracle of Purim, that God acts in hidden ways. So that's why he's not mentioned in the Megillah in order to reinforce this point that Purim is not a holiday where God acts openly, but rather he acts behind the scenes and it's our job to notice his hand in history. So that explains why God's name would be omitted from the Megillah in order to reinforce this very important lesson of the Purim holiday. So that's answer number two, which is popular in more contemporary commentators. Now there's a whole group of answers to this question, which have to do with the idea that the miracle of Purim had some sort of deficiency, that it's almost not worthy of God's name being mentioned with regards to the Purim story. So even though this was a very great miracle and we celebrate it every year and we appreciate and are grateful that God saved us, but there was a problem with the story such so that it's not worthy to mention God's name. And there's different ways to formulate this. So one formulation is from Rabbi Yonason Ibeshitz in the Yaros Dvash, Chelek Bez Drosh Bez. He suggests that the name Haman is actually not a private name that would be given to a person, but it's the name of an idol. So it's not like the name Joe or Steve. It's like the name Zeus. It's the name of an idol that was worshipped in ancient Persia. And he quotes from Josephus, as well as another history book from Yedidya Alexandri, that they say that Haman was the name of one of the ancient idols. Now, we know that Haman wanted to be known as a godlike figure, and that's why everyone was bowing to him. It was a form of idolatry. And that's why Mordechai took such a strong stand in the Megillah that he refused to bow to Haman because it was an idolatrous practice. But Rabbi Yonason Ibishitz seems to be going one step further that Haman didn't even call himself by his actual name. So whatever his own name was, he had dropped and now he was just using the name of this idolatry. And very interesting, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Samech Aleph Ahmed Bey's uses the phrase, if something was worshipped like Haman. So Rashi explains that that's a reference to the historical person of Haman who wanted to be worshipped like an idol. But it sounds like Rabbi Yonason Ibishitz explains that line in the Gemara that it's a reference to the ancient god known as Haman. So it might not be a reference to the actual figure of Haman. It's a reference to this idolatrous god. And Haman, in turn, took the name of that idolatrous God in order to reinforce that he wanted to be worshipped as a God. So based on this, Rabbi Yonason Ibishitz suggests that that's why the name of Hashem never appears in Megillah's Esther because it would be unfitting to have the actual true God alongside this fake God, this idolatrous Haman that keeps being mentioned. So that's why it would be unfitting to have the name of God in this book because it's filled with so many any repeated references to this false god called Haman. So that's why they omitted the name of Hashem when they were writing down the story. In a similar way, the Chida in his Sefer Pesach Enayim on Megillah Daf Yud, so he also suggests that there's a problem with the overall story of Megillah's Esther, and that's why the name of Hashem is not mentioned, which is that the whole miracle comes about through Esther's marriage to Achashverosh, which was an intermarriage. And according to the Gemara, Esther was even 
even married to Mordechai, so she should not have been with Achashverosh. That was a sin. And even though, says the Chida, that was how that miracle had to happen in those days, because based on where the Jews were at, that was the way they merited a miracle. So that was the way the miracle happened. But still, it would be unfitting to mention the name of Hashem in the course of a miracle which came about through something inappropriate like Esther being together with Achashverosh. So that's why Hashem's name was omitted from the Megillah. Another formulation of a similar approach is in the Manos Halevi, which is the commentary on Megillah's Esther written by Reb Shlomo Alkabetz, who wrote Lechadodi. So in the preface, he tells Sachli Zakein Echad that an older man had suggested to him the following answer, that since the Megillah is the third battle between the Jewish people and Amalek, the first one was in the days of Moshe when Yehoshua led the Jews in battle against Amalek. The second was in the days of Shmuel when Shaul the king led the Jews in battle against Amalek. And now this is the third time under the leadership of Mordechai and Esther that the Jews are going into battle against Amalek and they still are unable to seal the deal and finally defeat Amalek from the world. So this is the third failure of the Jewish people to finally eradicate Amalek from the world. So that's why it's not fitting to mention Hashem's name in this Megillah because it's basically a tale of failure. Even though the Jews were saved at that time and it was a very great miracle, but overall they did not succeed in the larger mission of destroying and eradicating Amalek. So to mention Hashem's name with regards to a battle which ended in failure is inappropriate. So that's why the name of Hashem is not mentioned because it was not not an ultimate win against Amalek, and the name of Hashem should only be associated with the final complete defeat of Amalek, which will come about in the days of Mashiach and the final redemption. So that's why the name of Hashem does not appear in the Megillah. Now, there's another formulation of a similar idea, which appears in the Sefer Ene Ha'eda, written by Rabbi Eliyahu HaKohen, who was a rabbi in Izmir in Turkey. And he goes through a bunch of answers on his own. Some of them we already mentioned, but he has a bunch of new ones as well. And many of these answers are brought in the Sefer Shalom Lecholzaro, as well as in a reprint of Rabbi Eliyahu HaKohen's ideas about Purim called Megillas Eliyahu. So these answers are quoted beginning on page 413. So one of his suggestions is that, again, there was some deficiency in the Megillah story such that it was unfitting to record the name of Hashem regarding this story. And his suggestion is that the ultimate point of the Purim miracle was not just that the Jews should immediately be saved, that was obviously one of the major points, but it was also that it should lead them to the second Beis HaMikdash. They were in the exile after the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash, and the purpose of this miracle was that Esther and Achashverosh's son, Cyrus, would give permission for the Jews to return to Israel and build the Beis HaMikdash, which in fact happened under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. So part of the goal of the Purim story was to lead to the building of the second Beis HaMikdash, but the building of the second Beis HaMikdash was not a tremendous victory. First of all, the Jews during that period were never on the same level as the first Beis HaMikdash, so they didn't have the same kind of miracles, they didn't have the same presence of Hashem in the second Beis HaMikdash. The second Beis HaMikdash never had the glory of the first Beis HaMikdash, and then it too was destroyed, which led to this very long exile. So since the victory of the Purim story 
ended with the second Beis HaMikdash, which was somewhat of a disappointment compared to the first Beis HaMikdash, and it too ultimately ended up destroyed. So that's why the name of Hashem is not mentioned in the Megillah, because at the end of the day, the miracle that happened with Esther was not an unqualified success. So that's his interpretation of why the name of Hashem was skipped. Now he suggests a bunch of other answers. Another interesting approach, which is totally different than any of the earlier answers we've gone through, is that the Megillah is trying to give credit to the Jewish people for this miracle more than it is to Hashem, which means that when it comes to other miracles, so we give the full credit to Hashem. Let's say taking the Jews out of Egypt was fully Hashem's project. But when it comes to the Purim story, so the Jews played a more active role in bringing about this miracle because they repented. They fasted for three days. They really did their work in terms of repentance, and that's why they merited the miracle. So in order to stress this point, the Megillah omits the name of Hashem as if to say that the Jews were the major instigators of this miracle, even though, of course, it came from Hashem, but the Jews had merited it through their teshuva. So the Megillah is trying to stress that by omitting the name of Hashem. In a very similar way, he suggests that the Megillah is hinting at a point that the Gemara makes, which is that when the Jews originally accepted the Torah at Mount Sinai, they were coerced. Hashem had to hold the mountain over their head and he threatened them that if they don't accept the Torah, then he would bring the mountain down. But in the times of Purim, the Jews re-accepted the Torah. That's what the Megillah says. Kimu v'kiblu. They accepted what they had already accepted. So they re-accepted the Torah upon themselves, but this time it was willingly. So even though originally it had been coerced, this time they did it out of their great love for Hashem and the Torah. They knew exactly what they were getting themselves into and they wanted it. They were eager to accept the Torah. So that was really the essence of the Purim miracle that the Jews now re-accepted the Torah in a willing way, in a way which was superior on some level to how they had accepted the Torah, even at the giving of the Torah at Har Sinai. So if that's the case, says the Ene Ha'eda, Rebel Yahu HaKohen, that's why the Megillah omits the name of Hashem to show that the acceptance of the Torah at Purim time did not come about through Hashem pushing the Jews or threatening the Jews, but it came about from the Jews internally. They themselves wanted to accept the Torah. So in order to reinforce this point, the Megillah omits the name of Hashem as if to say that the main characters in this story were the Jews who willingly accepted the Torah. Now, one final answer, even though he has others from the Ene Ha'eda, is he suggests that the reason the Megillah omits the name of Hashem is because it didn't want Haman's descendants to think that Haman was so special, that he was such a great adversary that Hashem himself needed to fight against Haman. It would almost be like giving Haman credit that he was worthy of having Hashem himself get into the fight. So the Megillah omits the name of Hashem as if to show that Haman was not worthy of having Hashem come against him. Even just Mordechai and Esther on their own were able to take down Haman. So it's a way to belittle Haman and to show that he wasn't worthy of having Hashem step into this story in order to defeat him. The question, of course, on some of these answers is that there are other stories throughout the Tanakh which seem to have similar characteristics where it does mention the name of Hashem. So for example, why is it not a tribute 
contribute to Paro that Hashem himself needed to fight against him. Or some of the other failures to defeat Amalek, as well as other miracles that came about through inappropriate acts, as well as other times in the Torah when it does mention the names of idols. In all of those cases, the name of Hashem does appear. So some of these approaches would have to explain why the Megillah is considered so different from these earlier stories that because of these various reasons, the name of Hashem does not appear. But either way, that's a survey of about 10 answers to explain why the name of Hashem does not appear in the Megillah. Now, it's important to note even though the name of Hashem is not written explicitly in the Megillah, but there are a good number of references and hints to Hashem throughout the Megillah. So there is a way of including Hashem in the Megillah, which is between the lines as opposed to explicitly. So the most famous of these traditions is the one recorded in the Medrash Rabbah in Esther Gimel Yud, that every time in the Megillah it says HaMelech Achashverosh, the King Achashverosh, that's a reference to the actual earthly king Achashverosh. But when it says Hamelech, just the king, so that's a reference not only to Achashverosh, but also to Hashem. So for example, when Esther gives her beautiful speech about how she wants to find favor in the eyes of the king and she needs the king to save her, she keeps using the word Hamelech. She does not say Hamelech Achashverosh. So that's a way of hinting that the one Esther was really speaking to was God. She was not asking Achashverosh, the earthly king, but she was really beseeching Hashem to save her and the Jewish people. And there's many beautiful ideas using this principle that the king in the Megillah is a reference to Hashem and the Vilna Gaon uses this principle a lot in his commentary. But there are other suggestions as to where you can find hints to Hashem throughout the Megillah. So the Ibn Ezra in his preface, he quotes that there are those who say that when Mordechai tells Esther, if you refuse to save the Jews, salvation will come for the Jews from another makom. Now the word makom is a reference to Hashem. In the Gemara, we find that Hashem is called Makom, the place. So the Ibn Ezra quotes that there are those who suggest that what Mordechai was saying to Esther is if you don't save the Jews, then the Makom, meaning God, will save the Jews. Now the Ibn Ezra disagrees with this because he says that the word Makom only refers to Hashem in the Gemara, so later on in Jewish history. But in the Tanakh, we do not ever find the word Makom as a reference to Hashem. So according to the Ibn Ezra, that cannot be the simple meaning of this verse, that makom acher is a reference to Hashem. And he also asks, what does it mean makom acher, another place? If it's a reference to Hashem, it should have just said that the salvation will come from the makom, not another makom. So according to the Ibn Ezra, that cannot be the simple reading of the verse, but perhaps it's possible that there is a hint in that verse to Hashem from that word makom. In addition, Rabbi Nubachai in the Karakemach, so he points out that when Esther invites Haman and the king to the feast, she says, Yavo hamelech Haman hayom. Let the king and Haman come today. Now the first letters of those four words are Yud, Hey, then a Vav, and then a Hey, which spells out the name of Hashem. And when Haman then gets upset and he's complaining, he says, All of this is not worth it to me. And the final letters of those four words are Hey, Vav, Hey, Yud. Ze Einenu Shoveli. 
So that spells out the name of Hashem, but backwards. Hey, Vav, Hey, Yud. So basically, Esther spells out the name of Hashem properly, and then Haman spells it out backwards. And there are other examples throughout the Megillah where some pattern of the letters seems to spell out the name of Hashem. Some of these examples are quoted in the El Yarabah in Simon Tafresh Tzadi Sifkat and Yud Tes. Now, one further point along these lines is that the Gemara in Megillah Yud Amid Beis interprets the Pasuk of Vahaya Lahashem. That there will be a name for Hashem, Zumikra Megillah. That's the reading of the Megillah. So that obviously seems problematic because, in fact, the Megillah does not have the name of Hashem in it. So, how could making a name for Hashem be a reference to reading the Megillah? So the Marsha in his commentary on Megillah explains that it doesn't say this is the Megillah, it says this is the reading of the Megillah. And part of the reading of the Megillah is making the brachas before and after. So those brachas do have the name of Hashem. So this is another way of seeing the name of Hashem in the Megillah somehow, because since when we read it publicly on Purim, we make brachas along with it. So those brachas do contain the name of Hashem in the reading of the Megillah. Now, just to end this whole issue of why the name of Hashem is not mentioned in the Megillah, on a bit of a lighter note, so in the Sefer Shalom Lecholzaro, he quotes from the Imre Pinchas, a totally different solution to the question of why the name of Hashem doesn't appear. And he may have meant this a little bit as a lighter comment, but he says that since one of the mitzvahs of Purim is to get drunk, so there's a real possibility that someone might end up reading the Megillah later on in the day, after they've already gotten drunk. So in that case, we wouldn't want a drunk person saying the name of Hashem. So that's why they omitted the name of Hashem in the Megillah, which is read on a holiday when people get drunk. Now, to end this recording, I want to just quote two other questions that the Ene Ha'eda deals with, which are very interesting. And he suggests a bunch of answers, but we won't really go through the whole thing. But the questions themselves are worth noting. The first is that Purim is called Al Shem Hapur based on the lots that Haman drew in order to determine which date he should try to destroy the Jewish people on. So after that raffle, which is called a Pur, we call the whole holiday Purim. Now, this seems like a very strange thing to do because generally we call holidays after the most important event of that holiday. So let's say Pesach is because Hashem skipped over the homes of the Jewish people when he was killing the firstborn. So that was a very significant part of that holiday. Sukkot we also call after the sukkah, which is a major theme of the holiday. So why, when it comes to Purim, would we choose such a seemingly insignificant detail to name the entire holiday after and not one of the more important parts of the holiday, like the actual miracle when Hashem saved the Jews? So question number one is that it seems like the holiday of Purim should have a name which is more fitting and not be known after the lots or the raffle that Haman drew. The second question he asks is that the real miracle of Purim actually happened not in Adar, but in Nisan. In Adar, Haman drew his lots, and then he decided to try to kill the Jews a year later in the next Adar. Meanwhile, a month later, around Pesach time, in the middle of Nisan, was when the real events of the Megillah happened, when the Jews fasted and repented, when Esther held her feast with Haman and Achashverosh, and Haman had to take Mordechai on the horse, and Haman returned demeaned, and then he had the second party, and at that party, Achashverosh turned on Haman and decreed
received his death sentence, all of those events, which were the main salvation of Purim, including Haman being hanged, that all happened in the middle of Nisan around Pesach time. And then the following year, so in Adar of the next year, was when the Jews fought against the anti-Semites and they killed many of them. So the final part of this salvation did happen in Adar on the days of Purim, the 14th and 15th. But the primary events of the Megillah, when everything turned around and the Jews were saved and Haman was killed, that happened around Pesach time. So the second question he asks is, why do we celebrate Purim during Adar and not in Nisan when it seems that the majority of the miracle, certainly when everything turned around, actually happened. So he quotes that the Sefer Ozne Yehoshua in Parshas Tzav has an answer which answers both of these questions. And he says that generally the kinds of miracles we celebrate are miracles which alter reality and alter nature in some way. Because we're surrounded by constant miracles that Hashem does to us all the time, taking care of us, keeping us alive, giving us all sorts of good things. But we don't celebrate those as holidays because they're done through the natural order. The things we celebrate tend to be the miracles which go against the grain, which change reality in some way. So when it comes to Purim, the Ozne Yoshua suggests that in general, the events that happened with Mordechai and Esther were the natural order. In general, Hashem looks out for us. He takes care of the Jewish people. And that's what he was doing during the times of Purim. So most of it just followed the natural order of things. What was a change was that in fact, Haman was correct, that the middle of Adar is a bad time for the Jews. And that was a day when the Jews were susceptible to being destroyed. So Haman correctly identified a date which was a bad omen for the Jews. And still Hashem stepped in and he transformed the natural order. So he changed those days which were a bad omen for the Jews and he made them a good omen for the Jews. So those days transformed from being days when the Jews were susceptible to attack to being days which are very good for us, days on which we celebrate. So that was a change of reality. So that's why it's specifically in Adar that we celebrate Purim, because the events that happened in Nisan were not a change of reality, whereas what happened in Adar was a change in reality. So that's worth celebrating. And that's also why we call it the Purim based on the poor, because the raffle refers to the central miracle which transformed reality, which is what we're celebrating. So that raffle identified the bad days for the Jews, which now became good days for the Jews. So that's a very special miracle, which is worth celebrating. So that's the answer he quotes from the Ozna Yoshua. He also mentions a number of other answers, which I won't go through, but one more short one that's cute. He says that Nisan already has Pesach. So why add another holiday to a month which already has a major holiday? It's better to spread out the holidays a little bit and have another month merit to have a holiday. So that's why they established Purim in Adar, which did not have any holidays at the time in order for Adar to also merit having a holiday in it. So that's why Purim got pushed from Nisan to Adar in order to spread out the holidays. Obviously, the question is, if Purim really should have been in Nisan, would we actually celebrate it in the wrong month just in order to spread out the holidays? But that's his cute suggestion.